This is Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service. I'm Troy Kitch. In recognition of the 100th year anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, this podcast is the second of two episodes this month featuring an interview with Jim Delgado, Director of Maritime Heritage with the National Ocean Service's Office of National Marine Sanctuaries. Now before we get started, you did listen to the first Titanic podcast, right? Well, if you didn't, hit pause. Go do that now. You'll find it on our podcast page at oceanservice.noaa.gov. Go ahead. I'll wait. Okay, so in our last episode, Jim shared some amazing stories about the Titanic that really got to the heart of why this shipwreck has continued to capture our imagination, even now, a century later. You may feel like you've been hearing about the Titanic nonstop this month in the media, and that there's really nothing much new to learn. Well, I bet what you'll hear today will be new to you. We're going to answer some questions that aren't really talked about much. Things like, who's in charge of the Titanic wreck? Why is the U.S. so deeply involved in preserving this shipwreck, even though it's in international waters and it's a British ship? What do we know about Titanic that, say, we didn't know five years ago? Well, there's no one better to answer these questions than Jim Delgado, ocean explorer and marine archaeologist. Jim has been on the forefront of Titanic preservation efforts since 1986, shortly after the wreck was discovered, and he's been to Titanic twice. His most recent trip in 2010 was a joint mission funded and organized by RMS Titanic Incorporated, salver in possession of the shipwreck. We'll have more on what a salver in possession is in a moment. So Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, the National Park Service, the Institute of Nautical Archaeology, the Wade Institute, and NOAA's Office of Marine Sanctuaries joined RMS Titanic, Inc. for this mission. And Jim served as chief scientist and lead archaeological investigator. This was a look-don't-touch mission, specifically focused on doing a comprehensive map of the entire Titanic site, not the bow or the stern, which had been looked at and carefully examined by others, but very specifically everything that connected the two pieces of the hull, the entire field in which every piece of Titanic which had disintegrated and fallen to the ocean floor, where all that lay as well as all of the artifacts, uh, about a several square mile section of seabed down there uh, two and a half miles below. Jim said the 2010 mission was the first time that researchers were able to see the Titanic as a whole. In previous expeditions, this just wasn't possible because of limits in technology. This was the first time you literally were going to be able to walk into the room and turn the lights on, if you will. If we look at Titanic as you would say a forensic crime scene, uh, imagine trying to understand that by walking into the room with a tiny little pencil flashlight and a bunch of smoke and crawling around and just looking at it and saying, okay, we think this happened and this happened. Here's a shell casing. Here's a bullet hole. Okay, here's the victim. But, you know, that's the way decades of looking at Titanic had happened. And that's because technology has been evolving. And the initial technology when the ship was found was towing cameras. Uh, sonar has come along and sonar has gotten sharper and crisper. So too has our ability with computer systems to capture digital imagery and stitch it together to create comprehensive views. Now all of this new technology came together in 2010, largely through the pioneering work of the Woods Hole Advanced Imaging and Visualization Lab. So instead of walking into a dark room with the smoke, you literally walk in and you turn the lights on and everything is there before you. So what we did with high-resolution sonar, what we did with 3D as well as 2D imagery was create this amazing map that you can now go to and zoom in 
from the surface all the way down from a big piece like the bow to something as small as a teacup and know exactly where it is in the real world. So in terms of Titanic, at least in regard to anything that's lying down there on the seabed, there are no more secrets. Since the 2010 mission was entirely funded by a private partner, RMS Titanic Incorporated, Jim said that a lot of the new imagery and data collected during the expedition is the intellectual property of this company. The government, though, has access to all of RMS Titanic Inc.'s data, which is being used to develop a detailed archaeological map. We're also working with them as we better understand the site to come away with a more comprehensive 3D look at the ship. And a lot of that they've taken and started to release through media outlets. For example, the April 2012 issue of National Geographic includes an amazing spread of beautiful, never-before-seen Titanic imagery. And as you may have heard, Titanic 3D is now playing in theaters across the nation. In that way, the government's participation has been to do the science and learn from the science and share the science with the public, while these other folks have paid for it by creating a commercial product that enables anybody in time to be able to virtually walk the decks of Titanic in 3D and see the site. Essentially, Titanic will be virtually raised for the first time. Now, if you find this private-public partnership a bit confusing, don't feel bad. It is complicated. Without going into too much legalese, as the official salver in possession, the RMS Titanic Inc. has exclusive rights to Titanic and can salvage artifacts from the wreck to exhibit. The U.S. government has an ongoing role in Titanic, too, to represent the public interest in preserving this historic wreck and its artifacts. NOAA is the lead agency in dealing with these issues, working closely with the Department of State, Park Service, and Department of Justice. The details of this complex relationship were spelled out in the Titanic Memorial Act passed by Congress in the 1980s. Since 1987, Jim said that more than 5,000 artifacts have been recovered from the Titanic. Today, these artifacts tour the world and are displayed in a permanent exhibition in Las Vegas. Until recently, those artifacts were the property, literally, of the no one. The court controlled them, and most recently the court awarded title to those artifacts to RMS Titanic, but with some rather long list of, uh, a list of covenants and conditions for the public interest. These included keeping the entire collection together, never selling it or auctioning it off one piece at a time, making it available for science and also for outreach and education. To make sure those covenants and conditions are followed, NOAA has been given the responsibility of acting on behalf of the court to review and report back with Department of Justice. And I'm the guy that does that along with Olaf Armour, the attorney, and David Allberg, who's the superintendent of Monitor National Marine Sanctuary. Olaf Armour, who Jim mentioned a moment ago, is an attorney advisor with NOAA's Office of General Counsel for International Law. Over the span of several decades, Varmer has played a key role in piecing together an international treaty to protect the Titanic and its artifacts. Now, the key word here is international. Remember, the Titanic is in international waters. So while the U.S. is shepherding this effort to get a treaty in place, it's an effort that involves many nations. Now, the United States signed the treaty, as has the United Kingdom. Two other nations are named and, and have not yet signed, and that's Canada and France, and we understand that efforts are underway. That will not ratify or bring the treaty into effect, though. That takes congressional action, and a variety of bills have been introduced through the years. I just I don't think it's ever elevated itself 
to the point where it, it really got much attention, or, and certainly it wasn't passed. Though we do hear rumblings that perhaps a new bill is coming and that it would happen this year in the 100th anniversary of Titanic sinking. So we have the Titanic Memorial Act, which directed NOAA to write guidelines on how the Titanic wreck site and artifacts should be preserved for the public interest. And we have an international treaty that's not yet in force that's evolved from the Titanic Memorial Act. So at this point, you may wonder, why is the U.S. so involved with this to begin with? It was a British ship, right? Well, here's Jim. Titanic is in international waters. It was a British flagged vessel, but owned by an American company. Uh, Titanic has strong ties to the United States, and that's not just because of Jack and Rose and, uh, and the films that were made in Hollywood, but because Titanic represented an important link between the United States and Europe, and specifically England in this case. That link was that which began 500 years ago in one of the greatest migrations of people in history, and that is people coming to the New World. Titanic is an important link in that long chain of immigration, and many of the people on board Titanic were either returning home to the United States or were coming here for the first time with the intention of becoming citizens. In one case, the recovered bag from one of these guys, uh, actually well-preserved inside his luggage, was his filled-out form of signaling his intent to become a U.S. citizen. So you consider a lot of these people are on their way home to be greeted by the Statue of Liberty and to come into Ellis Island and to and ultimately become Americans. In terms of the loss of life on that ship, the largest loss of life was that of British, followed only by that of people from the United States. So in terms of those who rest in the ship or lost their lives in it, we have the second biggest stake as a country. But also those cultural ties continue. There's a large number of Americans, thousands, who trace their ancestry to people who sailed on Titanic or who were lost. And there's a large number of places dotted in the vast American cultural landscape that link us to Titanic. Now we're almost home. As you've heard, the Titanic salvage rights belong to RMS Titanic Incorporated, but with a lot of caveats to ensure the ship and artifacts are preserved and protected. The responsibility of ensuring the shipwreck is preserved and protected into the future? The U.S. clearly plays a major role here, but it's a job that's not just for the U.S. Rather, it's a responsibility that's shared by the global community. So where do we go from here? Well, hopefully, we'll see action taken by our own country, by other countries, to appropriately deal with Titanic. In this anniversary year, because it is in international waters and nobody really can say much about what happens, what we did is... As a government, the U.S. reached out to the international community, to the International Maritime Organization. Our colleagues in the U.S. Coast Guard, working with a lot of support from NOAA, from the Office of General Counsel and International, and those of us in sanctuaries, as well as Woods Hole, the Park Service, came up with a, a recommendation that the U.S. government moved forward. The Coast Guard is the official representative to the IMO. So they wrote a letter. And that letter called for a voluntary exclusion zone around Titanic where you don't throw garbage, where you don't discharge. And that's important because when we mapped the wreck, we mapped more than what came to rest in 1912. We were looking at fresh beer cans and plastic cups. We were looking at a fair amount of detritus that had been left there or thrown into the ocean. And that's inappropriate even if there's not 
wreck like Titanic down there. But in particular for us, it was looking at this and saying, you know, if this was Gettysburg, you would not come up to a monument where men had fallen and see somebody's empties lying there. Just because there's not a garbage can, just because there's not a mowed lawn and the Park Service isn't there monitoring it, doesn't mean we should deal with a site like Titanic any differently. This voluntary exclusion zone is thankfully being followed by other nations. Notices are going out to mariners about this special area, and even the cruise industry has agreed to follow the rules when they're out there cruising on the site. Jim said that the U.S. has also published a map for subs visiting the area, which lays out the best place to enter and the best place to leave, so the ship, and more importantly the remains of those lost in the tragedy, are not disturbed by the visits. The map even details where weights should be dropped, those weights that are left behind when subs surface from their dives to Titanic. Because right now, uh, the site is dotted with drop weights from various expeditions. So better to have it in one place and try to leave that museum setting as pristine as you possibly can. So I think more of that in the, in the time to come with international cooperation and people voluntarily managing themselves will be an appropriate thing. And I think, too, what also could happen, should happen, is that as time moves on, we take an anniversary like this and refocus ourselves not only on the site, but on the stories, the people stories in particular, and tell more of those, and to reach out even farther to connect all of us, whether it's through a unique family story or through something we've learned down at the bottom of the sea with the, the saga of Titanic and the community that she was. Now, you may have keyed in on the fact that Jim called the Titanic site a museum, and that's important. It may seem strange to think of a shipwreck on the bottom of the ocean as a museum, but it is. And that's the key idea behind NOAA's mission to protect our underwater cultural heritage, which is a big part of what our National Marine Sanctuary System is all about. One of the biggest museums that we have in terms of American history and even world history rests beneath the waves. So if you consider the importance of manufacturing today and then think back 150 years ago to when whaling was as big as all manufacturing in the country, I think you begin to get a sense of just how critical the maritime world was to America. The fact that our government was funded entirely with customs revenues from ships coming in to Salem, Massachusetts in the first years of the Republic. It's vast. It's important to us. Today, we don't perhaps see it as much. We fly, we drive in cars, but it's there. NOAA sees the evidence of that in the form of the maritime cultural landscape, the harbors, the lighthouses, the things we pass, but also the ships that are down there. And there are thousands of them. And many of the important ones, uh, as they're found, uh, are studied. Others are set aside. With the discovery of USS Monitor, in 1973, it became the first national marine sanctuary in the United States, one of the first ships to become a national historic landmark, and still is only a handful of those that are national landmarks. And that's the cream of the crop, by the way. Those are the Mount Vernons. So Monitor was pretty important, and that led to ultimately 14 units in the sanctuary system. In one case, in Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary, over the 100 shipwrecks that really represent the history of 100 years of economic development and settlement in the Great Lakes, when that region was providing the backbone of the American economy through the iron ore and through the coal and the other products that were being created, those shipwrecks speak powerfully to not only that experience, but also to the role that NOAA plays through the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries in not only managing them, 
and protecting them, but making them accessible and available to the public through outreach and education. Dive tours, online exhibits, podcasts, all sorts of things tell the story of the wrecks at Thunder Bay, but also shipwrecks elsewhere in the marine sanctuary system. That was Jim Delgado, Director of Maritime Heritage with the National Ocean Service's National Marine Sanctuaries Office. And that's all for this week. If you'd like to learn more, check our show notes for the links. You'll find those on our website at oceanservice.noaa.gov. If you have any questions about the episode, about our oceans, or about the National Ocean Service, you can always reach us at nos.info at noaa.gov. And if you're socially inclined, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Flickr, and YouTube. Our handle is USOceanGov. That's all one word, USOceanGov. All right, we'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Making Waves from NOAA's National Ocean Service.